Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Eric Barreto. Eric is professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's been on the show before, but it's been a while. I'm so glad to have him back on. He's an expert, especially in Luke and Acts, but of course knows the the scriptures as a whole very well and and is uh, uh, engaged deeply in uh, the teaching of uh, the Gospels. And so that makes him a great fitting guest for us uh, this week as we look at Matthew, the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 3. 13 through 17, Matthew 3, 13 through 17, the story of our Lord's baptism. If you're enjoying the show today, as you listen, just press the share button on your podcast player app, and you can pass this along to others so that they can enjoy it as well. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways that you can support the show and become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Eric. Okay, Matthew three thirteen through 17. Any version you choose, what do you got? Uh, so I'm reading from the NRSV. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask that as we reflect on this text and the the moment the event that it relates, that it narrates, and the words that it hands on to us. Uh, We ask that your spirit, that same spirit that was descending upon your son, that that same spirit would be at work among us, guiding us, illuminating us, awakening us to the truth and reality of your word. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, Eric, what uh, what stands out as you look at this text afresh today? You know, it's this is for me when I teach intro New Testament is one of those texts that really sticks with me because you see, especially in the synoptic tradition, all this wrestling with this scene. So, the synoptic gospel writers are very interested in this scene. They want included. They think it's a critical part in the stories they want to tell about Jesus, but they all tell them so differently. And I think this is one of those moments when having one of those gospel parallels can be really enlightening for us as we prepare to preach these texts, because we see the distinctiveness that each of these authors bring to us. So, in, in, in Mark, because Mark is always in such a rush, Jesus is baptized and we're moving on. Like, it's it's a couple of verses and we just keep going. Uh, in Luke, Luke's account of the baptism 
is found only after John is already imprisoned. So right before John the Baptist is imprisoned, and then it says that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan in this passive voice that you're left wondering, well, who did the baptism? Because John is in prison, but although presumably it's John, of course, in Luke's imagination. And then Matthew's account here where we get narrated John's resistance to doing this, that he should be the one seeking Jesus' baptism, not the other way around. And Jesus' response to me, I think, is both beautiful and full and so confounding as well that I'm still wrestling with it. It is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. So I, I say all the time to fulfill all righteousness, mostly about bureaucracy, but I don't think that's what Matthew's after. But I think that's what sticks out to me is how this story is so important in the synoptic tradition. And yet these three authors are wrestling with it in all these distinctive ways, in ways that it's not about like who's right or who's wrong, but to kind of see them wrestling with this event uh, in their own literary ways of telling the story. I love that you brought that up. I wasn't sure. I, I knew we'd get to it. I didn't know if it'd be right out of the gate. And I love that it is because I have my parallel out. It's because I'm reading Luke all the time. That's why it yeah. came out right away. <laughs> so I've got my parallel out here and I'm looking at it. And so along, I mean, those are the, and we'll come back to those thematic level things, but there's a couple little, just little details that are also just so, I mean, you could use this and already learn, you probably would get to two or three of the distinctive styles just from looking at this passage. So one is that if Matthew, so he has that whole opening section that's not in Mark or Luke. And then when it gets to where he kind of seems like he's lining up really closely with Mark, then there's some word choices that are fun. So he leaves in the immediately's from Mark. He eventually starts taking them out because it's like, okay, this is getting over. It's enough. <laughs> but he my, leaves in part of my keyboard is not working anymore. <laughs> so he leaves in the immediately's, but he adds twice the behold, idu, which is again, the others use that, but he uses it way more than any of the others. It's a sort of Matthew favorite. Behold, you know, draw our attention to something. He's got one, and, and it, it's interesting where he puts them. Behold, the heavens opened, and then behold, a voice out of the heavens. So both of them at the heavens, you know, both of them kind of, you can almost feel the storyteller kind of lifting their eyes up, drawing our attention to something, to the thing you might miss if you're only looking down at the events. So I mean, sometimes his idus don't seem obvious why he puts them where he puts them. They almost seem reflective. Same with like Mark's uthus, his immediately. Sometimes you're like, is that really the verb you want to put that next to? It's just to? a thing he does. <laughs> yeah, almost an um, you know, <laughs> or yeah. uh, like, uh, like yeah. Uh, yeah. And then along with that, he pluralizes heaven to heavens in contrast to Luke, who puts it in singular. Which is pretty, like, very Matthew-y. Yeah. Yes. So yep. that's another Matthew. And then one other little thing, I mean, there's lots, but one other little thing is both Luke and Matthew use a, a different conjugation of the same verb mm. than what Mark uses to describe what the heavens do. And this is one mm, I wanted to right, ask right, you yeah. about in your understanding. So, so Mark uses this very, again, characteristically very violent language. It's schismanos, right? This like the heavens tore open, right? Rend open, <laughs> Rending yeah, open, yeah. which has significance in, I believe he uses that verb again when the curtain tears open. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. So I know that's important for Mark inside of Mark, but when you're doing, that's kind of doing, you know, long ways, but sideways reading, 
one of the, my first uh, profs in synoptic studies, David Smith, he would talk about longitude and latitude. Latitude's when mm-hmm. you're looking sideways, longitude's when you're looking at the whole text. So longitudinally, that's important. But then Luke and Matthew both just use the little bit more gen- little more neutral opened, yeah. right? Although two, they, they have it in a different uh, construction. But uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that particular little detail. The rest are like obvious. It's like obviously Matthew loves to say adieu. I think that's significant yeah. when he does it. The pluralizing heavens. Okay, these are just kind of standard Matthew style differences. This word choice is interesting and interesting that Luke also used it, which makes you wonder if there's even a history of tradition there beyond. <laughs> yeah, where they're drawing on some common sources or there's something about the that, that text that they're both. Uh, In this case, Mark's the oddball, right? Yeah, Mark's the word. Sometimes yeah. Mark, or either Matthew or Luke will match Mark and the other will be the, the outlier. Yeah. In this case, Mark has the unique verb and Matthew and Luke have the same verb, but again, in yeah. different form. I don't know. Any thoughts about that? Well, it's a different direction, but I think one for me, one of the things I'm always wondering about these, especially the Matthew and the Luke versions, is how much of this is a public event and how much of this is an event that's happening to Jesus. So, yes, in Matthew's account, right? Like he's in a just as uh, the the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, as opposed to Luke's the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, presumably then. Here, Luke's stressing the bodily form that it's visible by others as well. So it's not just something that Jesus is seeing in his head or an event that's only happening to him. We think about this other, you know, the the road to Damascus, for example, in Luke and how much in Acts, how that accounts, how much those who were with Paul recognized and heard the voice or really knew what was going on. And here, how much of this is a, a Jesus event that happens to Jesus and how much of this is an event that others could also bear witness to. I don't have a strong answer for that, but I think that's another interesting question to ask about this is if, you know, had we been there also seeking John's baptism, would we have seen what Jesus experienced? Yeah. And Matthew almost points in two different directions because yeah. when it says opens to him, it seems directed for him, but the actual quote from heaven unlike Mark and Luke says, this is this, my son, not you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is the same language more from like the transfiguration scene. So in Mark, it's, this is my son at the transfiguration, but at baptism, it's just you and Luke keeps the you. So Luke has the direct address, which keeps it a little bit more intimate. I won't say private, but at least intimate between him, the father and Jesus. And yet the bodily form highlights this is not just a dream because, of course, like in Matthew with the Joseph stories is all these appearing in a dream versus right. an angel appearing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, this is not this is no longer dream world stuff. This is real, tangible. Yeah, but but again, for Matthew, it's you're right. It's ambiguous. Yeah. And his his edits edits, maybe not the right word. That's that's cooking the books in favor of mark and priority. But yeah. <laughs> Which is fine. I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> Redaction. Matthew, how about choices? Matthew's choices. choices. Redaction would be the perspectives. Thing. Yeah. But math, I was thinking that with, uh, like I listened to some like podcasts, like movie podcasts. And they, I guess the term in like film criticism is always, well, that's a choice. You know, you refer to oh, when, interesting. A, when an actor makes, it. <laughs> in terms of the way an actor reads yeah. a script, right? It's a choice, like the way that they do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's a choice. And that it's a kind of a way of saying like, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know why they did that, but it's what they did. Right. And that's a choice. He's making this choice. This is my beloved son. But again, even there, the ambiguity because of the voice opening to him Him, implies that maybe in the moment it was 
more mysterious, more intimate, but the this makes it at least more public for us as the reader, because that's always the layers too, is what's a public event now for us, yeah. right? So, I mean, the layers yeah. are just really thick here. <laughs> no, totally. I think the other interesting, but maybe more contextual piece in looking at these different accounts. So in, in Marx, John comes out of nowhere because everybody comes out of nowhere, right? Just appears. Uh, and in Matthew, right? At the beginning of chapter three, in those days, so in these days, you know, of, and it's right after um, Herod and that Jesus and the fam and his family flee. So it's all this imperial violence in those days. So in those days of imperial violence, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea. And there's a way he almost steps out from the pages of scripture as an old school prophet. Repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Uh, in contrast to Luke, where he's Jesus' cousin, right? And then they have this encounter in the womb. They, their stories are, are woven together by Luke so that when they encounter one another, they encounter one another. Well, depending on how they encounter one another as, as family, as people who've known each other and here, Matthew's John steps out of the wilderness in this prophetic way, which I really find striking. Oh, that's beautiful. And it makes the, because he really highlights now Luke, excuse me, John, the way that Matthew mm -hmm. highlights yeah. John, I'm getting a little lost. Matthew, Luke, Mark, John, <laughs> gospel, so when, John. The when you bring a gospel scholar, this is what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes the need for that famous line all the more important, you know, mm -hmm. because in some ways, the well, we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Like Luke has highlighted John, but put him in his place already by the way he structures the opening chapters, totally. yeah. right? Yeah. And Mark, by just having him come out of nowhere and then move on, that sort of gets John in the story, but keeps him in his place. Of course, Gospel of John, who we've not discussed yet, has his own strategy for getting. Of course, that's it, and it's for John's Gospel. It kind of comes up a couple more times, kind of spreads out. But in Matthew. In some ways, he's so powerfully narrated this event of John's coming in the wilderness that he almost has to have this moment of, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 I, don't baptize me. You know, like, <laughs> I, I need to baptize you. you yeah, know? totally. Yeah, he's he's fire and brimstone when he comes on the scene, right? He's yeah. Uh, the clothing of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, his food was locusts and honey. He's confronting Pharisees and Sadducees, he just brimming with judgment. Uh, and here predicts, of course, right before our scene that we're focusing that someone more powerful than, than I is coming after me. So Matthew sets us up really well to see who it is. And, and, and John recognizes him right away. Yeah. He will baptize you with Holy spirit and fire. So it is interesting that he just said this guy's coming who's going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. You almost, I mean, I don't want to psychologize, but at least in terms of the narrative, you almost get this moment of John. It's not just John's respect for Jesus, but potentially John's desire to receive this baptism. Sure. Oh, I like you that. need to yeah, baptize yeah. me, not yeah. just with water because it's inappropriate for me to baptize you, but also kind of a, oh, you're here. It's time. Time for spirit and fire yeah. and almost a little implicit suggestion of a crucial theme throughout the gospel. Yes. Holy spirit and fire, but not yet. Yeah. Right. Like that's going to yeah, unfold it's, it's, in time. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. And we know that John himself had a little struggle come chapter 11 with, Hey, are mm -hmm. you supposed to look mm -hmm. for another makes you wonder like, Hey, where's, where's the Holy, where's spirit, the Holy and fire? spirit and the fire. Yeah. So we get an appearance of the spirit, right? So the spirit of God, 
depending if it's public or not. So the spirit has descended uh, and alighted on Jesus. And where's the fire? Where's the judgment? Where is this apocalyptic moment? And maybe that's part of what the gospels are struggling with. And maybe an imagination into which we might be called to where is the judgment of God in a world where empires and emperors can can kill all these innocent children which happened at the end of chapter two can cause jesus to flee like moses once did in those days where is the fire that was promised anyway so that might be another interesting way to bring folks into this conversation as well that's a beautiful question let's take a break right there and come back and explore some more And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Eric Barreto, and we are looking at Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17, the famous baptism scene as narrated in Matthew. Now, we take our texts for this show usually from the Revised Common Lectionary, which is kind of built around the church year. So this is this is a passage suggested for the first Sunday after Epiphany, January 6th. And so we begin kind of marching through Jesus' life between here and and Easter. And Matthew's the book for this year. It's year A. So I know you know all that, Eric, but in case any of our listeners are new to lectionary, I thought I'd explain that. And so and, and, and for the listeners who don't know lectionary, I didn't yeah. know lectionary existed until I went to seminary. Yeah, so yeah. You and I found out everybody. about it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was new to it too. And I just I have mixed feelings about it, but it's a it's a nice jumping off point for finding seasonally appropriate texts. But but then what's interesting is it chooses to skip over the next scene, the temptation scene, in the next couple weeks. So the next couple episodes, it's not going to go straight into the next section. The reason being is that passage is traditionally reserved for either Ash Wednesday or the first Sunday of Lent because of those are the 40 days, right? So there's kind of some jumbling that happens in the, the lectionary that's not arbitrary. It's rooted in the church year, but it does mean, I think it's worth commenting on. You just finished sharing a little bit about what was before this fire and judgment for John. And so anything we want to say about what's going to happen immediately after he's going to be driven into the wilderness, which again, in, in Mark is like one sentence. And in Matthew and Luke, we get this extended temptation scene. Is there anything you want to highlight there about like kind of what's coming after this passage context wise? Yeah. So you have this crescendo, a voice from heaven declaring Jesus' belovedness and God's being pleased with Jesus and his obedience and his work, his calling. And the first thing, and I think this is striking in all the synoptic accounts, that the first thing that Jesus does then is not do some more healing, not go preach a sermon on the mount or a sermon on the plain in Luke, but to go into the wilderness where he already is, right? He's already gone out to the wilderness to this place of of chaos and testing, uh, a place where Israel was tested for all that time. He's going to go deeper into that wilderness uh, and perhaps face some of that fire that that John has been talking about in a way, though, that is led by the Spirit. Jesus is led up by the Spirit. This isn't a choice Jesus makes at this moment. And I wonder if it's an extension of this sense of Jesus saying, I need to fulfill all righteousness. And part of that here is facing these temptations, facing these temptations to do this alone to to take up the the powers of empire claim them as his own and in that way conquer the world with using the logics of empire and violence and to have to face those and to step away from them at every point what if that's part of the call that jesus 
has to take up next. So it's not, it's not a detour. It's not a diversion. It's not a wondering. It's, it's precisely going deeper into the call that, that God has upon Jesus' life. Wow. That connection might with fire is powerful. The, mm-hmm. he has his baptism by water and then he has his baptism by fire to use a later expression, right? That he himself undergoes some of these trials and has to exercise judgment in the sense of resisting the temptation to go a certain way. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about this before too, but you know, in the third temptation and in Luke, it's the second one, but in Matthew, it's the third showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. So Jesus in the account has experienced all too well, the power and the splendor, right? Because his family had to flee and all these children died. He knows what empire is capable of. And you can imagine him thinking, well, I'll do, I'll use this. I could use this for good, right? I could take these implements, these human implements and do something beautiful with them. But I think sees perhaps because of what he's experienced at his baptism, that that, that path is going to always be fleeting for him. So I think this decision to fulfill all righteousness, to seek this baptism sets him on this very, on this path uh, of faithfulness. So it's not just a thing he has to do. I wonder if that baptism, that submission, that obedience, that, that sense that he had to go see John for this to fulfill all righteousness is a model of faithfulness for us, but also a model of Jesus' own faithfulness in, in the narratives. Yeah, and then this obedience is met with this affirmation mm-hmm. from the Father, right? Yeah. You are my son, which is then tested, right? Because isn't mm-hmm. that exactly mm-hmm. how the Satan frames his his temptations? If you are the son of God, yeah, right? <laughs> then, yeah. right? And I mean, I don't want to drive too big of a wedge between Jesus and John the Baptist, but you – I don't know if it's implied in the text, but mm. whether Jesus is himself undergoing a transformation mm. into a different mode of being Messiah than even what John may have been expecting, expecting or announcing. Yeah. I'm not saying that the teachings that Je- – because Jesus says some of the things that John says. To be sure. <laughs> so, I'm not mm-hmm. just saying like John's the median, Jesus is the nice one or something. But it's not impossible that that there's some contrast going on here, or at least some, I think your language, deepening, right? He was already in the wilderness, but a kind of deepening into how radical this way of obedience, this way of faithfulness, this way of righteousness is going to be for him. Yeah, it might be interesting to think how much, you know, in our scene, you, one way to read to fulfill all righteousness is this is the thing I have to do next, Right. This is a, a public display of obedience. This is the next step in my calling. Or, and, or, right. So there's a way to read that and say, well, he's just checking boxes. He's doing what he has to do. Which feels, I mean, you know, the kind of Matthew, the way the citations of the Old Testament, like, oh, of course he had to go to Egypt because of this fulfillment. Right. Box checked. Yeah. And I, I think at a surface level, that's happening, but it sounds like you're going to say maybe there's another layer. Yeah. So what if the, the, there's something in the baptism that isn't just a checking of the box, but an actual transformation of Jesus himself, like that this encounter with the voice changes him in some way. Um, so we have to wrestle with that theologically. And right. So th- there's, you know, there's a lot of debate in theological circles about whether, you know, whether there's an adoption happening here or what, 
Right. So I, I'm not so much interested in those questions at this point, because I, I don't know how much the gospel writers themselves are wrestling with that in particular. But is there something in the narrative that opens up the world to him, opens up a calling to him in a way that that encounter with God's voice makes all the difference for Jesus in that moment? But you're the theologian. Help us, John. <laughs> well, I have, I have no help on that front, because I, I, I think you're right. I don't think the text is a self-answer. It's asking a question the text isn't answering, right? And so all you have to do in terms of Christological dogma is say, well, according to his divine nature, he was always a son. But according to his human nature, that awareness of his sonship is going to unfold in time. So that's actually, I, I'm thinking there's a, have you seen the movie? Thank you for smoking. It's brilliant. No, I don't think I it's no, so no, brilliant. No. Anyway, there's this line where, where uh, Aaron Eckhart's main character goes to meet, he meets with Rob Lowe, who's like a movie executive. And yeah. he asks a question where he's like, He's like, oh, well, yeah, we should have cigarettes in movies again. And that's their like idea, right? And it's, yeah, it's a yeah. really sarcastic, funny movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's like, yeah, but what about like the oxygen in space? Won't it make it blow up? And, and Rob's like, Rob Lowe's character says, oh, well, we can take care of that with one line of dialogue. You know, aren't you glad we invented the, you know, whatever? Oh, yeah, right. And like, and, and, and Aaron Eckhart also is a narrator and you hear his narrator say, ooh, this guy's good. I got to pay attention to him, you know? <laughs> Sorry, that was way too much setup for no, a no, joke, no, no, no. but it's like, ah, eh, just one line of dialogue. I feel like theology is it. sort of like, yeah. yeah, as long as you say, you know, according to my nature, according to human nature, good. Yeah. Uh, but actually bringing that up makes me think of this line. There is this, wait, wait, John's baptizing Jesus? What? Mm-hmm. Uh, one line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he take care of that yeah. one line of dialogue. Yeah, yeah, just say, yeah. oh, we do this to fulfill all righteousness, right? Yeah. But then as we all know, as you know, you are a, you're an old Tolkien fan and Star Wars fan, I'm sure too. I, I know we talked about. We used to play. Uh, didn't we play Lord of the Rings Risk? Lord with, of the Rings uh, Risk. Back in the day. Way back in the day. I should mention to our listeners. Eric and I were in seminary. The three years of seminary, the exact years that the three yeah. Lord of the Rings movies came out. So that's a, a, a that's a that's our Mid- sort of when midnight showings were still a thing. Yes, midnight at that AMC over in <laughs> Hamilton, man. Memories. It's gone um, now. I'm sorry to tell you. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> Alas, but, uh, yeah, but you know, as we <laughs> know, we get here? <laughs> no, it's great. No, as we know in, in those yeah. kind of settings though, like in fantasy literature, whatever one line of dialogue then becomes a whole, I mean, the entire, like the entire rogue one and now the Andor series all comes off one line of dialogue, which is many spies died. So we could have this information, right? You get one little line and you can, a, a whole world opens up. And I mean, somewhat what we're asking, not in a silly way, but in a deep way, What's going on here? When Jesus says, this is to fulfill all righteousness, something is unfolding, some kind of justice, some kind of faithfulness, maybe beyond what even he, according to his human nature, is fully aware of. You know, something new is unfolding about his sonship, and it's going to be deepened and clarified through that temptation. I think that raises the stakes and makes that quick line of dialogue that's taking care of a problem also unveil the kind of deeper tension in the story, which is what kind of son are you going to be? What does this mean to be the royal son of God? And right. And that, of course, like the gospel writers are concerned with us understanding what kind of Jesus is, right? So here in the narrative, we're, we're kind of experiencing Jesus coming to know in some way what it means to be the son, the beloved. Well, it means you face temptation. It means you go out into the wilderness but I wonder if Matthew's primary concern here, or maybe not the only concern he's has, is not just how did Jesus get here, right? Or not just, but but what difference does it make that Jesus had to face the notion of his sonship in this way for how we understand who he is? 
and what it means for us to be children of God in a way yes. that's both akin, but not identical to the way that Jesus is the son of God. Right. Because all the evidence in the New Testament, it's quite clear that the practice of believers becoming baptized is fully up and running before most of these texts are ever written down, right? So there's yeah. no way for an early Christian audience to not also see themselves in this right. story. So yeah. even though this story is very much about Jesus, this is a scene that you can't help but you know feel invited into to learn something about yeah. your own identity. Sure. But these are communities have seen a bunch of baptisms. They've experienced their own baptism. So this is not it's like, oh, I wonder what this looks like. They know what it looks like. They know what it's, it's experienced. So I think to go back, I think one of the keys for us in, in interpreting and, and preaching the gospels is reminding ourselves that these are, I think these are texts written for insiders, for people who already know the story of Jesus, who know about the baptism, right? So this isn't a surprise to them, but what is the narrative then doing in retelling these stories and some ways stories that they've experienced in their bodies in going through these rituals of baptism in their own churches and their own traditions? Well, that's a perfect place to pause and then come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Eric Barreto, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, the famous baptism scene of Jesus as narrated by the evangelist Matthew. So let's explore some sermon starters. Where would you want to focus your energies? Where might you jump off of? Where would you head? What what, what are some thoughts on that? So many ways. I think, um, you know, we've been talking about this phrase where it is proper for us in this way to fulfill our righteousness. And I wonder if there's a way to invite folks into further reflection about what that means. A couple of things that jump out to me. One is the us in there. So this isn't for Jesus' own righteousness, but there's something about the thing that John has to do, the thing that Jesus must do, and that they must engage in this act together that strikes me as really important. This reminder that discipleship, even at its very beginning, even in its very calling, is a cooperative, relational thing, that Jesus could not have sought this fulfilling of righteousness without John's help. And I think then this call then to be the son of God then is not it is setting Jesus apart, but it's also setting Jesus into this world of relationships and community that the ways that we come to understand God so often, we had these moments when we were off by ourselves in the wilderness or in a moment of crisis, but so often these encounters we have with God are not burning bushes, but there are these moments of intimacy and connection with other people. So here, baptism, maybe as a reminder, baptism isn't just about the person being baptized, but a community that's bearing witness to someone else's obedience, someone else's faithfulness, uh, and that the way that that can stir up obedience and faithfulness in us anew. Oh, that's so great. I feel like a whole sermon just on this one line could just be so great. You know, uh, just one line of dialogue. You, I mean, you already made the first point, which is, or whether it's the first one or not, one of the points. I, I'm noticing also the opening line, which I, I miss all the time, because I li like you, I quote the phrase, the short phrase. Well, let's let's do this to fulfill all righteousness as like a joke about when you have bureaucratic forms to fill out. You know, just fill it out. Don't don't object. Don't read into it. Just take care of it. You know. But this opening line I forget to quote all the time, which is, you know, just let it happen now or let it be so. I, I don't know how to translate that really well. Um, afes RT. I mean, RT is now. 
Rafes would be from afe'emi, you know, to, it's the same word used like when he's saying like, let the children come, suffer them, come to me, right? The, just let it happen, right? Let's do this thing. Yeah. Like just, <laughs> but it's kind of this very, I don't, I don't know. Any thoughts about how to best kind of capture that phrase? I'm trying to remember how NRSV did it when you, tran- when you read uh, it. Let it be so now is how. Okay. And does it, um, which works. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as a translation. I'm just, I'm just kind of, I feel like that's part of it too, is this recognition that, you know, we, and, and, and in, and in this sermon, mm-hmm. you could try to play it off where you kind of put our, put yourself in John's spot for a while, put yourself in Jesus spot for a while, you know, yeah. where like, there's a tendency sometimes to resist the next thing mm-hmm. that Jesus is, is up to. Because yeah. it doesn't fit the paradigms that we bring to the relationship, right? And sometimes what he has to say to us is, come on, just just let it happen. Let it be. Right? Let, let, it be. It be. let this let it, next thing be. Yeah. Let it unfold. Yeah, I just got out the King James. It says, suffer it to be so now. <laughs> <laughs> and we've lost our way with English. Permit. <laughs> it yeah. must be done. But there is a kind of, hey, you know. Let it be. I mean, it's, I think it's the mm-hmm. same verb used later when they let go of their nets, you know, it's related to mm. a kind of releasing a letting be. Yeah. Yeah. The term can otherwise like has a bit more gravity, like about uh, the releasing of debts, the releasing of forgiveness. I don't know if it's the same language there in say the, the Lord's prayer in Matthew, but I think in this case, it's, it's something simpler, right? Let, let this thing happen. Like this is, I, I hear what you're saying, but let this thing happen. Why? Because there's something that we need to do together in this moment. There's um, a righteousness that we need to be fulfilling. And right. And I think one of the things to explore too is the way that the language around righteousness also intersects with questions of justice. Um, that's the same term, right? That, you know, when, 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 when Paul is talking about the righteousness of God, he, he's also talking about the justice of God. It's the same term. So, is there something here about the way that God is setting the world right? This is a step in that obedience towards setting the world aright. Oh man, I'm feeling a three point sermon coming out. Dude. I'm already feeling it. it's like you got this line, right? Let it happen now. This is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness to really, and I haven't worked it all out, but. If you were to just go through the line mm. one by one, you could emphasize that first phrase and that's okay. Then the question there is, what is the next thing that the Lord is up to that you're resisting, right? Maybe for good reason. What's the next thing? So that's the what question. And then the point you made next is the who. So with whom are you being called to do it, yeah, right? Who's the person who's the one you need to partner with in this season? Maybe it's someone you've been partnering with a long time and it's time to you know, re and it could be as simple as, you know, recommitting to that vow with a spouse or a dear friend or a coworker who I need to be doing this with them and stop trying to do it on my own. And then that third and the final most important thing is how, right? How, how am I going to live a life of justice? Right. And I think too, that it's not our, I think this is important too. It's not fulfill. I don't think Matthew here means fulfill it's not Jesus fulfilling my righteousness or John fulfilling his righteousness. It's, it's a fulfilling of, of God's righteousness, the fulfilling of God's ah, justice. Say more right? about that. That. This, is, that this is a path that God has laid out before us. So this isn't John making a choice or even Jesus making a choice, but it's a, it's a, it's an invitation into, into God's righteousness, God's justice. 
you know, I, I love this way that you're thinking about this. You know, what's what's the thing that needs to happen with whom and to what end? And it's always there to it the is. end of the fulfilling of God's righteousness, of God's judge justice and God's judgment. This is a text that on either side is full of of judgment and temptation. Um, right before this, verse 12, his winnowing fork in his, his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. That that moment of justice, that moment of judgment of righteousness is before us. But at the heart of that call to God's justice, God's judgment, is God's love of God's own son. That that love radiates out, I think, from the, in the text before, the judgment that's being enunciated there to the temptation that follows. The heartbeat of the story of, of Jesus finding his calling, accepting his calling, embracing his calling is, is God's profound love for God's own child. So not to miss that part, right? This is this is about God's love radiating out over us, not us seeking to love God in some way. Oh, that is just so good. I'm loving this. This is great. So so if I'm if I if I'm hearing it right, so what am I what's that next thing mm. that I might be resisting? With whom am I to enter into it? Right? And then toward what end? Where is this heading? Where is it going? And as that's unfolding, you know, I'm thinking of a sermon now, even where you, in each of those, you explore, you know, okay, let it happen. Let it happen. Even jumping to when John says, then he relented, he let it happen. Right. And letting happen doesn't mean doing nothing. You have a role right. to play. Yeah. Right. But it's just part of something larger. And then with whom, who's that person it's time for you to partner with and that community element that to repent of my self-sufficiency to do this alone. Uh, to go this way alone. And then the big one, the to what end? And then the question shifts from, I wonder if there even actually this theme of behold comes in. Right. Mm, or good. look. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, look. Yeah. Because yeah, when yeah. I was thinking, like, okay, yeah, good. You know, what am I resisting? Okay. Resist resisting. Right. Stop. Yep. Right. Let, let it happen. Don't go alone and look, pay attention. What is happening? What righteousness, what justice is God? unfolding where is he heading right pay attention to that and then play your part within it but it's always first a beholding of it's not my righteousness i'm achieving or something someone's achieving for me right it's look look right and then i feel like this would by by highlighting that look we're keeping it very a kind of a very matthew specific sermon on this passage, you know, and if you do follow the lectionary, these baptism scenes are going to recur every January, right? After Christmas season. So it's nice to have a, a very, uh, Mathean sermon on it if possible, you know? <laughs> and, and then you can continue that theme of looking, beholding from, from then on. I wonder too, if a, a sermon like this could, or in a different direction, but focusing on this text can help us reframe what's happening when when folks are baptized in our communities so it's we are a reminder that we're not just spectators of someone's choice but we are participants partners in god's calling upon someone's life um, for those of us who are doing the baptism we are called into this work and we're not just uh, robots doing this work we are participating in this in this beautiful moment of, of God's own calling upon someone's life. So I wonder too, if when we're reading this text, we're not just imagining something that happened in the past, but something that keeps occurring and reoccurring in the, in the baptisms that we experience, but also just in the ways that 
The spirit alights upon us, alights upon others, and we recognize, oh, here is the presence of the spirit. Here I see my kinship to someone else. Here I see the way that God has drawn us all together so that baptism isn't, to be sure, is a singular moment, but it's a singular moment that spills over into our everyday lives, um, that we can experience the waters of baptism, not just in our baptism, but in these miraculous and powerful ways that God's spirit shows up um, often in unexpected places like in the wilderness. Yeah, I must admit, I love getting to watch a baptism. Mm -hmm, Uh, Someone gave me, I don't even remember who this was. Someone gave me the idea where they said, you know, just like when you attend a wedding with your spouse, mm-hmm. you kind of have that moment of, Hey, remember oh, we yeah, did that, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Bring that same mindset. Every time you bear witness to a baptism to be reminded that you too were, were dunked, you went under too, you know, and then to recognize this is a partnership that you're being gathered as not just a spectator, right. But a participant in this community. And boy, I mean, this is a, this is an aside. We can't go here today. I'm just going to throw it there. And we'll, but I mean, we, Scholarship is taken for granted for for centuries, really, that the Lord's Supper scene has some inflections and maybe even being shaped by later ritual, right? Some of the terminology. It's hard for me to imagine that that might not be the case here, and that tends to be asserted less often, I feel, in the literature. You wonder if they said, uh, Hmm. especially Matthew's where it says this, you know, you could totally imagine someone coming up from the water and saying, and God now says, this is my son, right? In whom I'm well pleased, right? There is a kind of possibility here that these are words for us, not just about Jesus, but really in a deep way about us. We too are sons and daughters of God. And I think it's this humbling moment then of of knowing that our baptism and those of everyone that we witness, they're part of this long chain of faithfulness. And I am struck too, I think in, in traditions where churches baptize infants and this this reminder to remember your baptism, to remember something that you can only remember because other people told you about it, is a really powerful way to remind ourselves of the way that God has drawn near to us and, and, and chosen us before we could even utter a word. But I wonder too, if even if traditions where baptism doesn't happen with infants, right? Or with adults or with children or later on, that even there, we enter the waters of baptism, no matter when we do so, not fully understanding the shape of God's grace, not fully understanding the path that's laid out before us. And here, is there a way in which Jesus knows this is the next step and then has to walk through the temptations in chapter four to understand the depths of what, what has just happened to him, what it means to be called beloved by God. Um, there's just multitudes in the story that I think can, can keep the preacher busy for a whole lifetime of preaching uh, and us sorting out what in the world this text means. Let it happen now where it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's a little layer of that where, where Jesus himself is kind of saying, not just you don't get it, but I don't fully get it yet, right? Like it's still unfolding for me. I'm still experiencing it according to his human nature, of course. (laughs) One quick line of dialogue. (laughs) That's great. But that's what's good for us because all we've got is a human nature. So for us to recognize that Mm -hmm. sometimes the next step is just the next step. It's not the whole path. It's not the whole whole thing laid out before us. 
Well, thanks so much, Eric. I had a blast talking scripture with you. Um, so glad fun. you're back on the show. Uh, thanks to Todd and Eric for your production work. Can't imagine doing the show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to all our listeners and especially our supporters. Uh, if you'd like to become one of our supporters, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways that you can support the show there. And with that said, say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. 